Hello, my name is Philip Kish and I would like to welcome you to the very first episode of Best Alumni Podcast. Do you remember the passion and spirit we had when we were students, wanting to change the world and believing that everything is possible? While our student days are gone, does the passion and spirit disappear? For several years, Tassos Natsakis and I, with the help of many others, organized the Alumni Business Camp with the goal of bringing Alumni of Best, Board of European Students of Technology, together to network, exchange ideas, and challenge each other to be more innovative in our work and private lives. In other words, to show that this passion and spirit we had as students in BEST is still alive. From the feedback we received and the question, when is the next event gonna be, we constantly get, we knew the people really liked the event. Yet, we managed to reach only a small fraction of the community that counts more than 10,000 alumni. And this is what this podcast is trying to address to engage and motivate alumni community, but with the hope it will reach a much wider audience. We will interview alumni that have interesting projects, startups, research, or stories to share. I'm very excited to start this new project, and I hope you'll enjoy what we have prepared for you. Any feedback or suggestions are more than welcome, especially if you have a story to share. You can write to us at cast at alumnibusinesscamp.net. Once again, that's cast at alumnibusinesscamp.net. And now it's time to introduce you to our first guest. He was active in BEST from 2002 to 2006 and probably best known as the coordinator of educational committee, EDUCO, in the 17th International Board. After BEST, he moved to Tallinn and worked for seven years with marketing and digital strategies. At the same time, he was constantly close to startup communities, participating in several ABCs and winning too many hackathons. Now, he made a jump from 9 to 5 job to work as a freelance consultant helping organizations to innovate. Welcome, Joao Rei, to the very first episode of Best Alumni Podcast. Yeah, very, very happy to, uh, to be the first guest on your, on your new show. To start with, can you tell us a bit more on how your professional career started? What did you do after Best? So I think I, think I can see it myself after, uh, after being away from Best, uh, let's say 10 years after Best, that uh, that for me there was a period before best and after best best clearly changed the way that I that I approach uh, life and, and 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 what I wanted to do and what happened after best is that um, towards the end of my involvement with best I decided to move away from Portugal and and come to a different country and I, I came to Estonia uh, 12 years ago it's gonna be 13 years this year um, and and that that decision really changed the the path that my life was uh, was taking. Uh, before best, I was studying uh, environmental engineering. I think best was definitely a contributing factor to the fact that my studies didn't progress in the sort of linear <laughs> way that studies usually go. Uh, but but yeah, you but cannot I, be in environmental engineer and travel as much as we did in best. Yes, too. exactly. <laughs> or or have Shell and PNG as sponsors, but. <laughs> Yes. But anyway, uh, um, so I think after after Best, what happened was that uh, my, my girlfriend uh, was involved in Best and I met her through Best. She was studying in Japan and uh, and when she came back to, to Europe, we kind of had to make a decision on where to uh, where to settle because we tried the long distance thing for a while, but it was uh, it was a bit tricky. And then um, and then I knew that I wanted to leave Portugal. I knew that I wanted to go somewhere else. And at the time it was either going to be Estonia for, for obvious reasons, because she was, she was here, or we would go somewhere else uh, together. And when I moved to Estonia, I actually thought that it would be for a short period of time. I thought I'm going to be here for, for three years, because uh, I, I came here to, to, to do my studies. So I enrolled in the university again, from the beginning I did, uh, I did my, my bachelor's on, uh, International Business Administration, which was one of the few things that they had in English at the time. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do it for three years and then go somewhere else. Um, after the first uh, semester here, I decided to, to, start, uh, to start working. Uh, this was in 2006, 2007. I decided to start uh, working and I was seeing, you know, what, what, what could I start working on in, in Estonia. The startup boom wasn't here yet you didn't really hear too many people talking yeah. about startups at the time uh, but effectively what happened was that i, I joined a, a startup uh, nowadays we would call it a startup so one guy had a, an idea and a company that he had started in finland 
and he needed help structuring the business, making the business grow. And, and so I took on the position of kind of operations manager of the company. So hiring, and I, I used a lot of this know-how that I gained through Best um, to, to, to grow that business. And I did that for, um, I think, three years. And then, and then came the decision time. Because then it was like, you know, my three years in Estonia are up. I finished my studies. What do I do next? And this, for me, was a critical point in my life because the financial crisis was hitting. Going so back... So it was 2008. So this was 2009, 2008, yeah. So, so going back to Portugal was, was not really an option. Uh, basically, anywhere you would go, you would be in difficulty. Uh, and so I think at that point I decided, okay, life in Estonia is good. Uh, yes, there's a crisis, but I'm not that affected by it. Uh, so, so maybe, maybe we don't need to actually move and I'll just, you know, extend my studies, go on and, and do the masters and, and we stay here. And so I decided to stay behind in Estonia and the company that I was working with, they moved to, to Hong Kong. And I had traveled enough that I knew that I wanted to be in Europe. I didn't want to go with them. And so I, I decided to stay behind. And then after being in Estonia for four and a half years, uh, we, we, well, my, my, my girlfriend, my, my wife now, we get pregnant. And, and so this was kind of like, okay, now, now, now it makes even more sense to stay because Estonia at that time and, and still now has a very high support system for, uh, for new parents. Mm. And, and, you know, three years turns into five, five years turns into having a baby, deciding to stay. And this, this, at that point, I was kind of playing around a little bit with different startup ideas. But I think having the baby for me was like the wake up call, like, dude, you need to get a serious job. <laughs> like you yeah. need to bring money. And then, I, and then I joined this, um, this uh, agency, uh, advertising agency and, and doing digital marketing. And I have been doing that uh, since uh, since 2010. Um, mm. And I just and at left. some point you were even the managing director, right? Yeah, so so I, I joined initially as account director, so managing different clients, balancing out, uh, you know, where the money comes. Effectively, I was operations manager because the CEO spent a lot of time in Finland, so I was managing the team. And then at one point. I became the official CEO of that uh, or managing director of that company and, and I led the company through the, the merger with an Estonian advertising agency and, and I stayed with them until, until that company was then acquired by, by a big uh, international uh, advertising uh, agency, Havas, uh, which just happened uh, before the end of last year. And, and this is where I, I jumped off, the, uh, jumped off the, the company. And now I'm pursuing my own thing, kind of doing my solo freelance uh, or trying to figure out exactly what the next uh, step of my, my journey is going to be. But, um, but in a nutshell, you know, those last 10 years mm -hmm. after Best are, are told in that sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So after this merger, um, I mean, merger happened uh, some time ago, right? The merger was uh, the merger of my company with this with this big company happened some time ago, uh, and then mm -hmm. when when that happened, I uh, I took on as a more senior position uh, mm -hmm. as a sort of digital strategist for the whole uh, Baltics, and mm -hmm. and kind of overseeing a little bit the digital operations of the company and kind of growing it, and I think I think it was at one point where the company I had been there, if I look at how long I was with the agency, it was almost seven years. Uh, which, if you think of nowadays how people structure their work, seven years is a long time to be in one place. Yeah. And I think I got a little bit restless. The, the advantage for me was that these seven years, it wasn't always doing the same thing. So the things that I was doing kept changing. So I was doing, uh, you know, from account managing to, to managing the whole company to then working more with clients on digital strategies. And on the final two years or the final year, I think I went through some sort of uh, midlife crisis or some sort of work-life crisis, and I, I think I inadvertently brought that with me to work because I started changing the way the company works because of my own frustration. So the way that I saw mm -hmm. the relationship between agencies and, and clients, I started to question a lot of things about how the agency model works, 
and then I got the whole management on board with with transforming the way that we we do business. And so the last year and a half of being inside the agency was very much leading a, a sort of a change management program uh, and coaching teams and kind of changing the way that uh, teams work and bringing a little bit of the know-how of um, startups and a lot of this uh, startup uh, way of doing things that I had been mm -hmm. involved kind of on, on the sides. Uh, and I think the reason I had been involved with these startups was also that I, I had this itch and so I started doing a lot of these uh, mentoring startups, coaching startups, yes. and then hosting events, and and then I, I brought that with me to the uh, to the agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds very familiar. The, yeah, the yeah. Itch that I, you need to do something else. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think I, I've talked to a lot of people from my friends from from Best and and not only from Best, but I think that if if you look at the way our parents used to have a job for thirty years. And they were happy with it we or our generation might have a job and change it every three years so three years is already like a long time and then you change and you do something else and i think that my kids will probably have three different jobs at the same time you know so yeah. so that's the evolution it goes from 30 years to three years to three jobs simultaneously yeah, I think that's yeah. that's that's what's happening. And I wonder if they will they will even call it jobs, or maybe it will be just like, oh, I'm working on three projects at the moment. And Basically, and and I, and I think yeah. that's 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 the reality. You know, you you're working on on three things at the same at the same time. I, I don't know if mm -hmm. it's a good thing or a bad thing. I just see that this is what's happening. Uh, I don't think it comes from a place of boredom, or it comes from a place of. Uh, I, I think the more I think about it, I, I see the pros and con and cons of doing it. Right now, I'm very happy that I'm doing the freelance thing and I'm able to do three projects at the same time. When I was at the agency, I was anyway working at different clients at the same time. And for me, yeah. it just gives me a, a you know exposure to many different industries and exposure to many different challenges that I, at one point, I described my job as problem solver, you know, and that's that's basically the more problems you encounter, the easier it is to find patterns and then apply the same solutions elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but that's basically that's basic consultancy in a way. Yeah. But but also so, what it doesn't what it doesn't give you, I think, is the opportunity to spend enough time with someone that you actually form this A team type of feel that you know each other so well that the fact that you've been working for ten years, you are able to know someone and what they're able and not able to do in a completely different way rather than being the, you know, changing jobs every two years. Is that a downside? Definitely, definitely. I think that's a downside. Yeah. I think that's a downside that mm -hmm. uh, it's very exciting to do this uh, freelance or working in different uh, clients, uh, you know, for, for, uh, for a while, but, but you do miss out on the the team dynamics, you know, the, all, all of the theory that we went through at best that you can only get through this yeah. storming phase and you get to the performing after you've worked together for long enough to know mm. that you can fall and the team has your back and you know but, the skills. But, but to challenge you a bit there, I mean, what we did back then in best, I mean, the average lifespan of a bestie was a couple of years. So it's not the, the time span you're talking about, uh, 10 years or five years. Fair enough. So... I, think, I, think, I think the advantage of best was maybe the intensity. Mm -hmm. For everyone who was in the board of best or in a committee, but you know, seriously involved the international level, or maybe even the local level, but I, I, just, I measure it more from the international level because that's where I spend most of my activity at best. The intensity mm -hmm. is so big um, that you create these bonds very quickly and you work on these projects uh, with the same people over a short period of time that you get to know them very well. But it doesn't happen yeah. to everyone. You know, I, I still, yeah. when, when, I, when I talked to, you know, I was doing the trainings for the company about this change management, I was talking about team dynamics. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think, you know, I was very lucky with the board that I had and the, the, the teams that I've had uh, since. I, I might have had two times in my life that I think I was in these high-performing teams, you know, that went through all the stages and, and managed to go to the yeah. performing. And Best was definitely one of those. Yeah. 
So would then the recipe for companies and for your clients be to try to replicate uh, the best spirit in their company to increase this Intensity. chance of reaching the high performance? Yeah. I think that I think that's one way, and I think a lot of it. If you look at how startups work and this sort of agile thinking, or the the you know with the sprints and all of this, mm-hmm. or a lot of it has it comes down to this intensity. Um, but but it's not the only way. I think uh, one fundamental thing that builds the the team is this the trust factor, right? Mm-hmm. And and yeah. you don't just build trust with intensity. You know, you also need to build trust with a tolerance for failure and if you have a, a big enough company that can have this tolerance for failure then you can also build this uh, this trust which then you know helps the team to to feel like you know they're in the right uh, right place mm-hmm. so you mentioned the the one thing that led you to this uh, consultancy agency work you've done for several years was uh, you need to make money and the family uh, situation uh, how is that different now? Because uh, now you are going into a more risky, let's say, uh, yeah, self. Uh, yeah. So, so I think the difference now is that uh, I'm I'm older and wiser, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, and I understand that uh, you know maybe maybe at that point when when the first child was coming because now I have I have two kids the youngest is two and a half, and mm. and I think at at, at the birth of the first one just because it's the first one then this for me it was very much from a sense of responsibility of like needing to make sure that I had you know money coming in on a regular basis to be able to you know to start a family I think young couples are very much you know thinking that you know you're never ready you always need more so this this thinking is still very much with us I think what changed with the second one or now that I'm doing this thing even though I have a, a young kid is that I'm in a position financially that I know that if something bad happens, I'm secure for for you know for a period of time that I don't have to to worry about it. So that part gives you the safety net that I, I think I have now and I didn't have before. The other part is that I'm also in a position to know that I am going solo, but I'm not jumping um, without having you know places to grab onto, right? I know that there's and, and I, I started doing this solo thing at the end of last year and, you know, my, my plate is full. So there's, or I've already built myself a network that I can, uh, I can keep myself going with enough work that I don't need to worry too much about it. So it's, it's just a matter of the time has passed and I've been doing the things that I've, I'm doing uh, for a while that, um, you know, it's just better planned out. Let, let's put it that way. Okay. And how did you get to that stage? Uh, so I, I know you've been working with uh, Garage 48 uh, last year. So can you tell us a bit about that? So I think what, what has happened is that since uh, I've had that itch inside uh, my work life and I've tried to find ways to, to you know, keep myself motivated, so then I, I got in touch with this uh, organization that does a lot of uh, uh, events for, uh, for, for startups. It's called Garage 48. And they basically organize hackathons, so you know weekend events where people come together and they they program something or they do they build prototypes to see if it's a viable business idea. And I, I I joined them in the beginning as a participant, and then I attended a couple of these events. And when I did that, it honestly gave me so much energy out of just this one weekend that I couldn't get from my day job on a, on a daily basis. And of course, again, here the intensity comes to play. Uh, it reminded me a lot of this, you know, the best feeling of, you know, work hard, play hard. Um, but I came out of these events physically exhausted, but mentally I was super excited, you know, and I could see how my skill set could be used in a completely different environment with a different set of people. And after participating in a few events and and winning or, you know, you know, coming to the final three, or you know, getting uh, a lot of uh, a lot of good feedback. I think they they started they got a little bit bothered that I was winning all the time, so they invited me <laughs> to mentor. And then from mentoring uh, at those events, then it it came to to hosting. So now I was then I was mentoring, so helping the teams at the events, 
and now I'm hosting, so I'm I'm coordinating the flow of the events and and opening the events and coordinating the work of the mentors. And so I've been involved with them uh, for for I guess two years now uh, in different ways. And then they you know going to to different countries and organizing the events with them. And I think that gave me uh, gave me the know how, gave me the confidence to know that I could do it for others, and it also gave me a little bit the network uh, that I had already been building myself. Uh, here in uh, here in Estonia, uh, to now be able to kind of go solo and and do this uh, do this on my own, uh, because mm-hmm. you know once once they start doing this, um, applying the same methodology to to corporate clients, then it's very easy to start uh, you know selling it and, and and making some money from it, not just from a uh, oh let's get some students together and, and see what comes out of it. So you can apply the same methodology for companies that are looking for ways to, you know, come up with a new, a new business product or a new uh, service. Yeah. So I, I I see a lot of this happening. I mean, uh, my own session lab business is is very much involved with all of this innovation, service design, uh, workshop related um, activities, and I wonder. I mean, I'm I'm excited about it. I also uh, feel like this intensity and and uh, in a way hands-on focus that it brings uh, is, is quite valuable for exactly what you say. You get exhausted at the end, but also very motivated. However, is this just a buzzword that everybody's trying to figure it out and everybody's organizing these workshops and, and, and so on? Or does it really bring value to the companies? Have you have you experienced that? And and you know to challenge this a bit i mean you've participated and won uh, you said several times these things is any of those ideas actually alive did any of those transform into into a real startup there's there's at least one that you know they're still doing something with it there's another one that i wasn't part of it during the hackathon but it was it came from a hackathon and and i'm still helping them with so a couple of them, you know, they actually go places. Again, startup failure rates are ninety percent, right? So it's yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Garage Forty Eight in that sense has quite a good track record because uh, there have been success cases of companies that went through the hackathon format. Maybe they came not just once, but they came to several different hackathons and they improved and they tweaked the format and they they they, they got better. And there was one acquisition, a big acquisition by Facebook. Of uh, of a company that came through uh, through a couple of our hackathons in Belarus uh, mm-hmm. called Masquerade, uh, the one that did the face filters. You know, you can see them on uh, on Messenger. Um, mm-hmm. So so they have some success cases uh, from that, but the majority of ideas, you know, they never continue beyond the weekend. Uh, that's that's the reality. Mm-hmm. That's that's on the that's on the um, default hackathon uh, method. You know, there needs to be either a strong follow-up or the members need to commit their time to actually do something with it. So what happens after the hackathon is is really much up to the teams. But then, you know, we also try to direct them to either accelerator programs or incubations. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you look at it from the other side, from the corporate side, which I also find exactly, very interesting, yeah. then I do think that there's a little bit of a hype around some of these uh, methods or, or how, how innovation happens. But I would not blame the methods themselves. I think a lot of it has to do with, with the corporate culture. So if you, if you mm-hmm. go to a company that expects, expects people to work 40 hours a week and on top of the 40 hours a week or 35, depending on which country you're from, uh, you know, on top of that, to come up with innovative ideas that are going to grow the business, uh, but you as an employee don't get a lot of reward for it, then that's doomed for failure, right? Mm-hmm. If you as a corporate uh, want to have these events and a lot of funny ideas happen and, you know, maybe some business potential ideas happen, but there's no internal follow-up, then again, the same thing is going to fail. Uh, I've I've been a part of uh, of corporate uh, innovation schemes where there was almost no tolerance for failure. So basically, you you give a team an assignment to come up with new ideas. They come up with a with a couple of new good ideas, but then they're expected to produce results within six months, um, like tangible business results, not just you know validating mm-hmm. the idea, but tangible business results. And, and they give no, 
like there's no room for okay but if we find out in two weeks that the idea fails let's just kill it you know and that's never the mindset there needs to be a tolerance for failure and and very quickly killing ideas that don't make it and i think the corporate mindset is still very much on a no 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 you have six months you don't figure out if you can do something or you have six months and and this this mentality old-fashioned way of uh, very very old-fashioned not not mm-hmm. the not the way that you know a startup would tweak learn modify it you know change it drop it uh, if needed and completely pivot or abandon the idea and let's say you know what it didn't work let's just go somewhere else so is the uh, 90% failure rate in corporate bigger I think it depends a lot on, on, on the corporate. So I, I can I can give you two mm-hmm. examples. There was one hackathon that we did for a company where you could almost see that the only point of doing the hackathon was as a way to keep employees motivated. So it was just an event <laughs> for employees to come and you know and, and have like a day outside of the office. What what was interesting is that a lot of the ideas that came of that hackathon were HR related. This is not an HR company. I'm not going to say who it is. It's not an HR company. But a lot of the ideas that came out of it were connected with HR. So it was about employees not being too happy with the way things were, were you know, working. And, and a lot of the ideas had nothing to do about the core business. It was about vacation planning, scheduling, uh, conflict management, um, you know, employee retention, a lot of it. Uh, so, so that was interesting to see that a company that was using the hackathon in the completely wrong format because it was just to you know keep employees happy the other flip side is uh, another hackathon that uh, that we did and we did that for a, a big corporate client a, a telco and they have an internal uh, program to support the ideas that come out of it where management commits uh, not only resources in terms of finances um, but also in terms of time that the employees can allocate to work on these projects and they've had successes with several ideas that were started within the company and now have in one way or another generated revenue for this uh, telco so so that's that's a different approach that's a different approach and i think that has a higher success rate than uh, than normal so so this goes back to your point about is this a hype are companies using this as a hype absolutely i think they are i think a lot of companies are using this as a hype but in reality the the situation is that the marketplace has changed uh, not only from an employee retention point of view but from the threats that companies are facing because the market is changing quite fast i mean i don't have to to tell you this but you know the 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 pace of change has accelerated because of you know technology connectivity all of these things so a company that was using the same business model 30 years ago that not might work in the next five years. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know where I was reading this, but you know, someone living in the, you know, two centuries ago, the way they lived and the way their parents lived was pretty similar or the way their grandparents lived was pretty similar. Yeah. We look at our generations, the way we live and the way our parents lived is vastly different. So the pace of mm-hmm. change is just accelerating. And that means that for companies, they need to find ways to adapt. And I honestly think that going forward the companies that will survive or the businesses that will survive have two things in common they are fast to 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 adapt and they are very customer focused so they they know exactly you know who who they're talking to and they provide value to those customers and if you combine those two things there's a lot of things you can learn from uh, from startups because from day one they need to focus on their customers and they need to be changed they need to change very quickly So if anybody here listening to this podcast is in a position to maybe organize such an event, what would you advise how to approach it so that it's the success, not the failure example? I, th- I think that it needs to start a little bit before organizing the event. I, I think it needs to start from understanding what is, what is the problem that you're solving or you know, what, where do you see the threat coming that this might be a solution for it. A hackathon can't be seen as a magic pill and it can't be seen in a sort of standalone uh, scenario. It needs to have like a, a pre-preparation phase, like why are we even doing this? And it needs to have a strong follow-up. And I think, you know, the, 
the culture of the company has to support it. I'll give you an example. There was a company that we were doing a hackathon and I think one of their ideas was an idea bank. Okay, so a website where people could submit ideas and then other people could upvote the ideas and, you know, something would happen. And I'm like, you know what, that's, that's great. You're not the first ones to have an idea bank. But what's going to happen is that if people start upvoting and submitting ideas and within a year, nothing happens with those ideas, yeah. then it becomes an idea cemetery. It's yeah. not an idea bank. It's an idea cemetery because that just creates the complete opposite effect, which is that people are submitting ideas and they see that nothing happens. So if you do a hackathon and nothing happens with the outcomes of, of those ideas, then people are gonna feel even worse than if they hadn't submitted anything. Then the whole mm -hmm. thing backfires and there's no point at all in doing it. Then just, just keep doing your business and you're good for the next five years, fine. You know, There's plenty of money to be made in the next five years by following the same business model you're following. Uh, yeah. So if you wanna use a hackathon, do it, but make sure that you know why you're doing it and what's the long-term strategic purpose of, of the company and what you expect to do as a follow-up to, to the hackathon. Um, th those are the ground bases. On the event itself, I think there's plenty of things you can do to make it uh, stand out and to have a you know, higher success rate. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the people here at, at Garage 48 and what I'm doing with... Uh, with, uh, with another company called Elevate that does it for, for corporates. Uh, we've been doing this enough times that we've kind of uh, honed in on, on the method, but a lot of it has to do with the way that teams are structured. So teams need to have cross-functional skill sets. You cannot have a team just of developers and you cannot have a team just of designers. Mm -hmm. So cross-functional teams. Second, we, need, we always come in with our own network of mentors that have seen how to do it and how to focus very clearly on the outcome of the 48 hours so that you you know you you can spend time in a very efficient manner if you're doing a 48 hour hackathon and there's no progress happening with your project in 1 hour or someone is stuck you know doing a task for 1 hour you need to move on you need to either find a solution or a hack or bypass it because 1 hour is super valuable and what, what we bring with our mentors is a lot of these, you know, techniques to, to kind of uh, find shortcuts or, or get you closer to the, to the MVP that can be uh, tested. Um, what else? Yeah, I mean, other than that, you know, make sure everyone is, you know, freshened up and uh, has enough to, to drink and, and, and the minimum amount of sleep needed during the 48 hours. And, and we put a lot of focus on, on the validation so that, you know, if there's... If there's something being built, it needs to be tested. So validation even within the 48 hours. And at the end of the 48 hours, we don't want to see a PowerPoint. So we want to see a prototype. At the end of 48 hours, we want to see something that moves, whether it's hardware or it's something clickable, but no PowerPoints. So we don't allow PowerPoints at the, at the <laughs> events. That's cool. So what are some of the next projects for you coming up? So, so the, the next upcoming things that we're doing is uh, we're doing a, a hackathon in, in Riga next week on uh, smart mobility. It's done in cooperation with, uh, with LAT Telecom and with uh, the Dutch uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, so the Embassy of, uh, of the Netherlands. Um, and it, it happens in, in Riga next week. Then we're going to have a, a, a very interesting one, which is uh, sponsored by a, a VC fund here in Estonia where they want to take um, teams that have already built something, might have already some traction, but they want to use the format of the hackathon to, to kind of give a speed boost into what the, what the teams are doing. So teams that already have something that just about started starting, like, you know, like what you're doing with, with your company, right? So that would be a good example of someone who already has something figured out, already has traction, but maybe they want to use the weekend to maybe connect with some other developers or some other designers, bring them on board, brainstorm new paths and kind of work together for a while. And, and if, they, if they manage to do something, then the VC fund will take them on uh, boards for, uh, I think it's a month in, I think it, last time it was in, in San Francisco and this time it's gonna be in Singapore. Uh, so to open up new markets uh, for them and uh, and maybe looking into uh, investment opportunities so that's a slightly different format than than usual because this is for already uh, made teams 
but that sounds really interesting and and you are right we are often stuck in our day-to-day activities and urgent issues which i guess is often the case with startups that have limited resources yeah i, I was i was i was uh, kind of coaching one one startup here that uh, was in a similar situation so they had a lot of you know operational duties that they had to keep up with and you know just trying to get the product out and what they decided to do was to do like a design sprint where they took the core team members you know also kind of cross-functional they took them off-site to they just rented a house on airbnb and they went there for a week uh the weather was shit so they could really focus on what they were doing and, and the outcome was, was very different from being in the office and doing the normal everyday thing, right? Uh, but even if you think about it, one week is a lot of time. And, but, but then again, if you think of doing it in the, in the weekends, then, uh, then you, know, you, you could easily afford to spend one weekend uh, doing this without damaging the normal operations of the, of the company. And then the advantage of doing it at a hackathon is that you can always connect with people who are not core members of your team, but might have solved similar issues to the ones you're facing now. So you benefit from uh, from from mm-hmm. that from that help and you know the mentors and everyone around the, the event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So going back to the topic of the family, how does this work for you, being away on the weekends and often traveling to these events to other countries? I, I think I think I'm, you know, with the first child, I was very much. Uh, also, because of you know finding the the stable thing and everything, I was very much of the opinion that you know you need to be there all the time and you know do this and so on. Uh, now that the kids are a little bit older, so you know my my youngest is two and a half. Uh, on the, on the one hand, I'm I'm super lucky and and thankful to to my wife that you know I can do this because she can she can stay at home when I'm away. Um, but the, the interesting thing is that while I was still at the agency, so I still had this table job, uh, she was coming out of her maternity leave and she was the one <laughs> who joined the startup. So she joined the startup, uh, you know, before I did. So she saw what it means to work on that side and she was also traveling. And when she had to travel, I also stayed. Uh, but, but the reality now is that I, I travel a lot more. And, and there's no way that I could do this if I didn't have, uh, you know, a wife that was uh, understanding enough and, and kind of was able to, to, to compensate for me not, not being here. And then the, the other good thing of what I do at the moment, which is more on the freelance side, mm-hmm. is that I can make my own schedule. So when I'm not traveling and I'm home, then I'm definitely more time at home. So I'm definitely spending more time with them. So I was, you know, yesterday or two days ago, it was super sunny and still everything was covered in snow and i was able to take you know the whole afternoon off and just uh, walk around with uh, with my oldest kid and just go to the park which is something that if i was working nine to five there's no way that i could do that yeah and i can say as a new father that that's encouraging to hear yeah i, I don't think i don't think you know I, I think it's 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 a common misconception that a lot of people have before they have kids that you know it changes everything and it puts a lot of limits what you can and cannot do and I've seen numerous examples from people from best and and not from best that having kids doesn't need to limit the amount of trips you make it doesn't need to limit how you uh, you know how you how you party or how you go out or you know where where and when it's just it, you just need to be able to coordinate uh, a very big variable, but uh, but there's many options out there. I mean, there's babysitters, there's grandparents, there's uh, there's a lot of options there. Yeah, I guess you're right. So speaking more generally, do you have some other advice you would like to share with the alumni community, or maybe you have some requests, for example, uh, mentors for your projects? I, I remember I remember that um, whenever we did the ABC event in Berlin. I can't remember if it was the first or the second one. The first one. First one. So the ABC in Berlin. I remember very clearly that uh, I was, you know, I was uh, at the time, I think I was managing director of the company. I can't remember the timing, but I was already feeling kind of a little bit of an itch. And I remember someone said that the biggest enemy uh, of your sort of entrepreneur life is is kind of the fact that you are employed somewhere and you have this comfortable 
uh, paycheck from from time to time. Um, and I, and I, w I went back to this many, many times because it, it really rings a bell. Having this sort of comfortable position puts you in a, in a spot where you feel like you don't need to, you know, you, you, you're fine, you know, why, why, why challenge it? And, and for me, what finally made me do the jump was, was on the one hand, I was secure enough that I could do the jump safely, um, but also the fact that uh, I didn't want to be too much in this, uh, in this mm -hmm. comfort zone, you know? And when I, when I was finally decided that, okay, the agency life uh, was good, but I need to find somewhere else, I had several different uh, job offers, but those meant full-time job offers. And I didn't want to move from a full-time thing to another full-time thing without at least first exploring this path that I'm exploring at the moment. And I asked myself a lot of questions during this time, and a couple of these, these uh, job interviews that I had mm -hmm. were very much similar to, uh, to a therapy session. <laughs> because people were, asking me, people were asking me things like, you know, tell us about what you've done so far. So tell us about your path. And, and then they started asking, no, 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 but don't tell us what positions or which clients you worked for. Tell us about the impact that you created. Like, mm -hmm. talk about your, your sort of work life in terms of impact. What, you know, how has the world changed because of what you've done? And, and this, this sounds very millennial, I know. It, it kind of, you know. But, but going forwards, I think I'm going to try to be a little bit more conscious about, about these things. And like, what's what's the impact that that I want to have and and where is that going to come from and once I started saying that I realized that it wasn't going to be at the agency it wasn't going to be there that I was going to have the impact or at least I didn't see it directly uh, besides the fact that I was making a couple of companies more rich so so now I, I see a little bit more of a direct impact and if you talk about impact and best clearly at the time that we were there had a lot of impact and that made me feel very aligned with how I wanted mm -hmm. to do things. Um, so my wife now says that what I do is basically what I was doing at best, just that I get paid for it, <laughs> which I'm totally fine with. And I'm very fine with that, with that uh, analogy. So, so going to these ABCs was very helpful because even though back then I was still you know, fully employed and doing these things, uh, it already helped me to establish this mindset that, yeah, I should, I should start looking at things a little bit differently. And uh, yeah, and that, that, you know, going through this questions in my head about what was it that I wanted to do next also helped me to understand what I don't want to do. And that was when I started saying no to, uh, to a couple of these uh, things. I, I remember reading, in, I think it was in the New York Times, they were saying something about if, if you could pick between having a, um, you know, working two years doing something that you don't like that much and like 60 hours or like crazy hours a week but then you you then you retire you don't have to work a day in your life or working until you can't work anymore but doing something that you love and what would you pick and i think you know my first instinct was usually to say you know i'll work the two years and then i can retire and not do anything but then if yeah. that's the solution then what do you do okay you travel a bit you go around the world you, you know, hang at the beach, but that gets kind of tiring after a while. So you end up doing something. And what is it that you do? And why don't you just start doing that now and find a way to get paid for it? And in my case, I think that has always been a little bit connected with either teaching or, or coaching or mentoring. Mm -hmm. So now I'm just doing a lot of that and getting paid for it. So I just jumped the point where I worked the two years and killed myself and and now i'm doing the you know doing what i like uh and getting uh, getting paid for it i remember that conversation from berlin and there was somebody mentioning entrepreneurship as an option where you uh, employ the innovation and lean approaches but you do it inside the company inside the company yeah and that is something you did in idea right absolutely so this might be advice for people that uh, do not feel like they are ready to jump the ship yet. Uh, try to innovate inside the company. Don't change your job, but uh, change what your job means. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in that sense, I was also very lucky that I had been at the agency uh, long enough and I had the trust of the, the, the you know, management and the owners of the company. So I went up with them and I said, listen, guys, 
what we're doing currently, our model going forward doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'd like to spend some time with you and do a, a workshop with, with management to figure out how can we sort of future-proof ourselves. So we started this kind of process of, you know, how, how would an agency look like if we design it from scratch? And, you know, with the goal of like, you know, in the future to, to be relevant. And we followed a little bit this Simon Sinek's approach of starting with why. So kind of starting, you know, why do agencies exist? What is the purpose that we're, you know, what is the, the problem that we're solving? And then, and then we went into what are the services that are going to be relevant? And finally, we went into how we're delivering those services. And this is where the how, a lot of it came from this methodology of, you know, the agile, the lean, and the, um, and the, the, the sort of cross-functional uh, teams. And, and so for the last year and a half, that's what I was doing in the agency, was kind of implementing this uh, change management, which gave me a ton of insight into this uh, topic of change management. And I'll just give you, I'll just give you a little bit of a hint of, a funny thing that happened, which was when I presented this to the people inside the company, so to the, all, all the employees, uh, I, I presented like a, a chart with the new setup of how the, the teams were going to be made. And, you know, small details, but, you know, that chart should have been like, you know, a team in a round circle, right? You know, everyone is kind of, you know, flat. Uh, but I still presented it in a very hierarchical type of way, you know, very, very organizational chart type of way, right? And then I did another mistake, which was I, I labeled the positions of people and I called them, you know, communication specialist, um, marketing specialist, you know, just to, so the people, design specialist, whatever. So people will understand that, you know, there's different specialities and everyone contributes to this cross-functional team. But people got so attached to their job titles because before they were, you know, maybe they were a PR consultant or they were an art director. And now suddenly on the chart, it looks like they're just a specialist. So for them, it was like a downgrade. And people get so attached to these job titles. And I was so frustrated at them because I was thinking, guys, it's just a job title. Who cares? Like, you can call yourself design guru or ninja or, you know, whatever you want. You know, I'll print it on the business card. I don't care. And, and the reality is that when I left the agency and I started doing my own thing, I was affected by it because then suddenly I was thinking, I don't have business cards. If I go to a meeting, you know, who, who am I? Where do I belong? If I go to give a speech or a talk somewhere, they're going to ask me for a summary and they need to have this guy from this company, right? Yeah. So if you're, if you're, it doesn't matter who you are, but if you're John Doe, from Google talking about AI, it adds a ton of respect rather than, you know, Mr. John Doe, uh, AI consultant, you know, it's, it's very, very different, right? Mm. And so this attachment that I had to the job title, which I was not making fun, but I was like telling people, come on, this doesn't matter. I still had it myself. You know, at the end of the day, we're still humans, you know, we still want to belong somewhere you know we want to still have this uh, this thing and and one thing that i started doing and being very conscious of is that people are attached to their job like it's part of their identity so much uh, what they do and and where they spend their time that uh, i i want to start kind of detaching that a little bit mm -hmm. so for example now when i introduce people i try to avoid saying oh this is so and so the ceo of this or the whatever like i try to make part of the introduction more on, especially if it's at a party, like, uh, oh, you know, he just came from a trip to Bali or, you know, he, he's just a recent father, you know, he, he enjoys, you know, filmmaking or whatever it is so that it's not just tied to the, uh, to the job itself. Yeah. And I'm thinking this probably helps remembering, right? Because we are better at stories than facts. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then what would be your title now this is very very funny because um i was I, I was talking to someone from best who was thinking about uh you know having a call with me about maybe doing a hackathon for for their company and then they asked me uh so what's what's your job title mm -hmm. there and i'm like okay first of all i'm not employed by them i do like you know i do projects with them so i'm not employed and second i don't have a job title uh, there's no 
title associated with uh, with what I do. So I described a little bit what I do in terms of you know the the events and the hosting and the the coaching and the mentoring, and they're like, okay, I'll just I'll just say something business development. Or something. <laughs> uh, and and the other funny thing was that um, the invest now they have this uh, uh, educational involvement department. I think they have departments now. So what used to be a duco now they have an advisory board and they were uh, they were kind enough to invite me to be part of this uh, advisory board and we had the, the first call uh, just this week and also there i had to kind of talk about you know what's my background and of course there the context has to be more connected with with education what i've done uh, at educo but i wasn't also able to say you know this is who i am at this specific institution doing this specific job you know so it, it gets very tricky to to put it in one one sentence that you can put on a business mm -hmm. card, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'm okay with that. I'm I'm okay with the ambiguity. I'm okay with the. Uh, I think I remember when we were in in Best, uh, the number one question as the VP for Education, so head of Educo, was to explain to people what does Educo do. Yeah. And I think I still have that issue now, trying to explain to people what I do. <laughs> but I'm okay with that. I'm i you know I'm okay with the ambiguity. Yeah, I think we would need a whole another podcast episode just to figure out that question. What Educo does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I would like to conclude with something we've been also doing a lot at ABC events, and that's sharing tips on books, uh, podcasts, and, and other resources that you read or listened to and uh, you find interesting. Uh, so podcasts, I'm definitely going to advise <laughs> this podcast going forward. Um, I'm actually uh, involved in one podcast that I'm doing here in Estonia. It's called uh, Startup in Estonia. Uh, we just finished season one and I just uh, closed the agreement to start season two in, uh, in April. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk to different uh, uh, companies here in Estonia and try to understand uh, a little bit about uh, you know, what, what, makes, what makes these companies uh, tick and how uh, how they are so successful outside of Estonia. So I, I recommend that. Uh, in terms of resources and, and maybe connecting a little bit of, about the ask, then uh, if anyone out there listening is interested in, in these themes, then definitely reach out. Uh, find me on uh, LinkedIn or email or private area if that's still a thing. Yeah. <laughs> these topics with you. And in terms of books, I just uh, I, I spent two weeks in uh, Egypt uh, with uh, with the Garage team and basically reading a lot. Uh, there was one book uh, that I recommend to uh, to anyone. It's called "Let My People Go Surfing." It's from the the founder of uh, Patagonia, uh, the company that does uh, out outdoor uh, gear, and he just talks how he became an accidental businessman but how his philosophy uh, carried on into, uh, into the way that uh, you know, his, his company is structured and how they look at the environment and all of these things. So I really recommend that book. And just because it was a, a topic a couple of days ago, uh, I think in terms of company culture, uh, whoever is thinking of doing something internally or for their own you know, startup or company that's growing, look through the slides of the Netflix uh, culture, or actually I think Netflix has a, uh, you know, a special webpage for their own culture, because I, I still think they're one of the best examples in terms of how to create a culture that's sort of tolerant to failure, but also very candid in the way they give feedback. And, uh, and yeah, so Netflix is a very good example in that. Indeed. Thanks for sharing these resources. Any final thoughts? When are we gonna have the next uh, ABC as an event? That's a very good question, and uh, I don't have an answer to that. At the moment, we in the old team do not have resources to organize it, so ABC as a project is on a hold. That doesn't mean others cannot do similar events, and if they do, they can always contact us for advice. The sooner, the better. Yeah, but is this podcast a way to kind of uh, compensate for that? or In a way, yes. We always wanted to do more than just ABC. We wanted to keep the alumni network alive between the events and reach more than those handful of people who happen to have time and possibility to travel. 
So I do hope that the, this podcast will do that because I feel there is a lot of potential in our network. But I, I think the ABC was one of those projects that out of all of the alumni type things that we keep talking about involving alumni was clearly one of the most valuable things that BEST has created uh, for the alumni. And, and that uh, I, I think someone should, should carry that. Because we talk about, you know, BEST has been around for a long time. There has been, there's many people in the alumni communi community that have a lot of know-how that they can share. So I, I hope this podcast might be a way to, to do that. Um, but the, the ABC as an event, I think it's something that we, we should find a way to make happen. And, it, you know, it's just a matter of finding someone from a slightly younger generation than, than yourselves uh, who don't have families and all of these uh, commitments to carry over because, uh, you know, BEST has been around for so long that we have enough people now that have a lot of know-how to share with each other and, and to connect that with BEST. Uh, you know, I think BEST as an organization, I'm not too in touch with it anymore, but we, miss, we missed out on the whole wave of yeah. entrepreneurship and startups. Yeah. Again, I don't know if they're doing anything at the moment, but if you think of what we were doing already in our generation with the competitions, it was a perfect prototype for whatever is happening nowadays with all these startup events, right? We had the best engineering schools in Europe, the best technical know-how. Um, we had people with, with good enough marketing and good enough uh, visual and, and, and business uh, know-how. We have the network of alumni maybe a lot of them with money to invest and with, with again, connections and know-how. There, there was just so many potential for BEST to be an engine for, for entrepreneurship in, in, technical, in the technical field around Europe. Uh, the other thing is that the network itself, if you think of, if you think of a company that starts in, in the US versus Europe, the US is easy to dominate because of the common language. Europe is completely fractured in different languages and different markets and different, you know, even legislations. Yes. But because of the network of best, I could easily start a company in Poland and contact a dozen people from my network and be able to scale my product outside of my, my own country very quickly. Again, missed opportunities that I think best together with the alumni could have, uh, could have uh, done it from, from funding, from scaling, and from the uh, from the events, from the kind of idea generation. Yeah, actually, once I asked a professor uh, in a business course advice uh, when I was starting Session Lab, and after hearing about uh, our network, he told me I should uh, instead just start a consulting business uh, because he saw huge potential in that. Exactly, exactly. And what you were saying about competitions, I think the traditional engineering competitions were geared to solving a defined uh, problem, and thus demonstrating how good a, of an engineer are you and how well will you fit in a big enterprise. Maybe there should be a track of competitions that are more like hackathons. Exactly. Philip, you remember whenever we had job fairs, right? At, at yeah. DAs and PMs, we had job fairs. It was usually the sponsors are using the job fairs for hiring people to joining them. So the whole career path at the time when we were in BEST, and I don't know if it has changed now because I'm not connected to it anymore, but the whole career path was finish high school, go to university, do a little bit of extracurricular activities, get hired by a, a big company, right? It was still from that mindset. It wasn't the mindset yeah. of, you know, start your own thing. And I think if the path now is start your own thing, then the way that best structures the events and the way that best structures the whole career path approach also needs to change. And I, I think we need, yeah. exactly. And I think we need to start empowering the people from best also to kind of pursue their own things. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a hackathon, but, you know, I, I see how these events happen and I'm just seeing so many parallels with what BEST is doing. So definitely one thing that I'm trying to do with Garage and with this, these events is to also bring people from my own network of BEST to come as mentors. Um, mm. So, you know, I, I've, I brought a few, a few people from BEST to events that I've done in to events we've done in Oslo. Um, we did something in Moldova that I was trying to get people involved uh, from a training background. And so there's a lot of opportunities there for people within our network to do more in this uh, entrepreneurship field and hopefully bring that to the current generation of best, 
again, without knowing what they're doing at the moment. Maybe they are already doing it and, you know, I, I don't know of it yet. Maybe. Who knows? But I think this is a good place to end for now. Yeah. Thank you, Joao, for uh, all the insight into hackathons, uh, innovation, and your own career and life. And of course, it was a pleasure having you here at our very first episode. And uh, I'll see you somewhere in Europe. Thanks, definitely. I hope the, the, the new generation of alumni takes an interest in this. Me too. In the description of this episode and on the alumnibusinesscamp.net website, you can find links to the projects and resources that were mentioned throughout the interview. Don't forget to subscribe to Best Alumni Podcast in your favorite podcast app. Leave us comments on Facebook and Twitter or write to us at cast at alumnibusinesscamp.net. I also want to thank Tassas Natsakis, Hannah Hasekwist and Robert Cherty for providing feedback and encouragement in setting up this podcast. And finally, thank you for listening and join us next time when we'll talk to Nadina Busuyok about being a woman data scientist and dealing with one of the most complex supply chains in the world. <laughs>